I built you that home and that one too. I built you that home and that one too. You tore it down and dug the earth. You tore it down and dug the earth. Collective Imaginings is a Light Plus podcast series from Lighthouse, curated and hosted by me, Jamila Prowse. The roots of this series were planted in January 2020, although the thinking behind them predates even that. In the time that I have planned them, researched them, begun dialogues with the collaborators whose words form them, the world we exist within has changed significantly. During the eight months before we came to record the first episode, my thinking and approach as a curator has unravelled entirely. Due to my own learnings and reflections, as well as harmful experiences I have been through in this sector, I am no longer sure if I wish to curate. I am no longer sure of the value of having conversations in public. As I share these conversations with you, I have unraveled and doubted the meaning of them and their worth so many times. As cultural workers, we are routinely bound and compromised in what we can share publicly. Although in this series, I was given free creative control, a rare thing, Many of us are still bound by contractual clauses. Even as I make a series about our embodied experiences of harm, I cannot explicitly name the beast I refer to. So where does the value in this series stem from? Throughout this series, I'll be speaking to cultural workers, including artists and curators, who have been through and continue to think through their own processes of learning and unlearning, resistance and radical imagining. Their work and ideas have helped me to better understand the reasons I was originally drawn and connected to art making and cultural organising. The conversations that follow are not complete, exhaustive or final. They are snippets into possibilities and imaginings which have helped me to better understand myself and my positioning in the world. I hope they might help you reach insights and learnings of your own. This series was originally intended as an open resource for people interested in, or entering into, or working within the arts, of personal accounts of navigating the sector and strategies for resistance, self-preservation, and survival. In many ways, a series I wish I would have had when starting out in the sector, as someone who has continually felt lost, overwhelmed, and squashed, and one that would also be invaluable to me today. I have come to realise through these conversations and my wider research that survival is not and will never be enough. We need to be able to do more than survive. Even still, I hope that these personal accounts come together in a collective radical imagining for the art world we hope to bring into fruition. Collective imaginings stems from, and is a continuation of, thinking which took place in and around Eva Rosen's 2019 curatorial residency at Lighthouse, Who's Doing the Washing Up? Where's the Sink? which included a Light Plus podcast of the same name. In this episode, I'm in conversation with artists and curators Deborah Joyce Holman and Rabs Lansico. Deborah is currently the Associate Director of Auto Italia in London and previously founded and ran Basel-based Gallery 1-1 from 2015 until its closure in September 2020. 
Raps is part of the curatorial and artistic duo Languid Hands with Amani Robinson, through which they are the Cubit Gallery Fellows for 2020-21. We will be discussing the intersections between artistic and curatorial practice and how having work commissioned and displayed as artists informs how Deborah and Raps devise methodologies for caring for the artists they collaborate with. I just wanted to start by thinking about um, the kind of ways that that relationships and like collectivizing has has kind of come into play in your artistic and curatorial practices. Um, I know that both of you have this re- really strong um, sense of like building long term relationships with the artists that you work with, uh, with collaborating with various people. So I was just wondering um, in in your your own words uh what kind of role those informal support systems friendships and kind of collectivizing has has played for you um Rabs, do you want to start sure um so i mean for me those relationships are the reason that i do the work that i do um mainly because of my mum who's an artist um and who's also acted as a mentor to me and other um young people who are interested in doing this kind of work um and she kind of she creates opportunities um and kind of coaches people through uh through navigating these systems um from her own experience and so that has meant that the way that i work and the way that language hands work is very kind of um the way that we work is very resistant to the system of the art world um, and we're able to do that because of the knowledge that she's imparted into us um, and also because of the way that she's kind of encouraged us to work um, within communities to create communities to kind of have the community be at the center of the work rather than the work be using the community if that makes sense um, and when when I began doing this work I I began doing it through a project that she initiated, which was Sorry for an Uncomfortable Collective. Um, she initiated that alongside Teresa Cisneros. And there were 16 of us at first. I was 18 at the time. It was like the beginning of, it was the first kind of BLM moment. Um, and that defined a lot of how I'm able to to, to operate in the art world. Um, those people who made up that collective are you know, still peers, even if we're not in touch as much anymore, there's still people that um, influence the work that I do and we do. Um, and it means that I'm interested in cultivating those relationships going forward and creating different kinds of communities going forward and making sure that um, that working with artists as a curator is not kind of an extractive or parasitic kind of experience. Mm-hmm. It's a long-term thing where we nurture each other and and our role is to allow the artists to do the best that they can do, mm-hmm. um, which involves long-term relationships. It involves friendships and, um, and being in community with each other outside of just the art or outside mm-hmm. of just the work. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Deborah? Um, kind of similar. I mean, it's also very, very important. It's basically at the core of everything to have like a, a, a network of, I mean, network sounds maybe a bit like functional, but um, community to 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 do this work 
I started also like with kind of opening an art space at the same time as I started studying at university. And the idea of that was really to have a space, like to show friends work, to to bring in people that we didn't know into like a, a community of people and, and like nurture this exchange among all of us. The community that I was part of, that, that I am part of, was really important to just even be able to open the space because um, it wouldn't have been a, possible like to do that alone. Not all of them are artists or like have shown at 1.1 at that space that I run in Switzerland. Um, but I think there's still like this exchange and, and nurturing that Rabs mentioned is still is still present in in different ways, which is also really nice to have like these exchanges across different industries. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because what you what you're both talking about as well isn't necessarily, you know, um, you're building relationships with people specifically to work with them like it's all um feeding into each other and these are people that that you know are your friends are are your peers um who kind of you know you're in you're in holding kind of commune with and holding dialogue with um outside of the the specific you know quote unquote work that you're doing um and maybe it informs it but it doesn't have to be like formalized in that way and you know, I suppose that the reason that I want to think about this as well is because I suppose uh, like there's an experience and I I certainly in, in my own experience of like being trained within kind of institutional settings, that was my introduction to the arts was like in kind of production and managerial roles in, in like white institutions. And there's this experience of being like really isolated when you're going through that and going through these quite like clinical and quite uh, like hostile in in many ways um spaces and that then like you know it completely disconnects you from yourself and from the things that make you who you are and sometimes the ways that you come back to that core of like why you want to to organize with people to create space hold space with people is actually built in this this kind of desire to support each other and 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 have something that's really nurturing and nourishing for you as opposed to um you know instrumentalizing your relationships in order to um like get somewhere or or bolster your I don't know practice or cv like that you neither of you are coming at it from that point which is actually maybe more common in the arts I don't know if that's been either of your experiences of kind of navigating these spaces? I think uh, particularly in terms of like curators' relationships to artists, like it tends to be about um, what working with that artist can do for you as a curator, um, which doesn't make sense to me. That's like the opposite of what it should be. Um, You know, we can't make work as curators without artists. Um, and obviously it's complicated because I think both of us are artists as well as curators so it it becomes blurred there but there's something in kind of creating relationships that don't depend on whether or not there's a show or whether or not there's something to to be kind of gleaned from that Um, and I think a lot of people struggle with being isolated in those spaces and not having the kind of caring communities that can support them in those spaces and those spaces are also intentionally isolating us so that they can exploit us Mm -hmm. um and I know that 
in my experience of like mentoring other people or being mentored, transparency is really important. Um, you know, having really honest and frank conversations about uh, where you're at is really important and, and, um, and seeing each other as people rather than as an artist or a curator or seeing each other as a something to be extracted from. Um, I think that's the, the key thing is, is relating to each other as people. Yeah, relating to artists as people is really the the center of it all, I guess. Um, also, in in just like thinking about what person you want to be yourself and um, how you treat people and what you want, like why why are we in the arts and what do we want art to be in our life and like um, beyond, I guess. And like for me, that's more and more clear that that can't be like just this one part of my life and then I'm another person in my friendships or like somewhere else like that kind of has to go hand in hand and it has to expand um beyond the exhibition or beyond um you know that that like the work I guess Mm -hmm. so just also thinking about how I wanted to talk to people how I want to treat people in like certain situations um where maybe you would get it past um just being an asshole just because you're part of an institution but choosing not to do that um or trying not to choose that I guess so I think I think that's really important and then I guess there's also the question around like what is the role of the curator in an institution and mm-hmm. um most of my experience has been as a freelancer so working at the space that I ran which is obviously very different than um working with institutions as a freelance artist artist or, or curator and I guess as a curator I often then saw my role as kind of um, being able to create an environment that is productive for the artists as well and where they can where they can do their work and like I guess like kind of a buffer between the in- institution and mm-hmm. the artist where you can communicate um with the artists in a in a way that hopefully um, gives them some sense of safety and and comfort to explore ideas and make work, and then communicate with the institution in a way that the artist doesn't have to. I mean, this is like basically the core of of um, curator's job, I guess. But I think there's just also a lot of space in there to to reflect on like what role you want to take and um, yeah, what like intention, being intentional mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm, definitely. So I just want to kind of draw on some of those ideas that you're both talking about in relation to, because you, you both, as you said, have artistic as well as curatorial practices, which must give you a sense in a way of the ways that you could be treated as an artist working with curators, working with institutions, or just with individuals in whatever capacity that is. And I'm wondering that like, in the kind of um, ways that your art has been handled by people um, uh, and by organisations and institutions, um, how has that kind of given you insights into ways to develop your own methodologies around how to um, organise with artists, how to kind of care for artists and, and build supportive relationships with them? I guess it depends on the institution that you're showing work in and that you're working in as a, as a curator as well but I think it definitely gives a sense of like what is helpful for the process and and because I feel like that there's 
a lot of different work flows happening at the same time if you're like when you're working in an institution as an artist or working on an, on an exhibition or whatever where there's like the artistic side and, and the whole production logistics organizational kind of side and I think yeah as a, as a curator there's I think a lot of space to um, just deal with like the whole logistical side so that you can protect the artist from having to deal with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's also where a lot of maybe sometimes problematic questions come up or, you know, discussions around how is an exhibition text written or does the artist get to proofread the exhibition text, stuff mm-hmm. like this, where I guess my my um, experience as an artist definitely helps because while you want your work to speak to different people and like allow different readings it's also important to be clear about how you want to present it in what in what frame so like all these these frustrations when that is kind of neglected definitely helps shaping how you want to interact as a, as a curator I think. Mm, I mean you spoke before about that idea of kind of being a buffer um between the institution and the artist. And I guess that's been very similar to my experience as well, but like working in a freelance capacity and quite often wanting to ensure that like the the structures that are kind of oppressive or challenging or harmful don't trickle down to the artists that you're working with and that, (laughs) you know, you can can build... um, build a dialogue and build a relationship where you're treating them in a way where um you know you're you're ensuring that that they are first and foremost kind of you know their their well-being is prioritized and their their vision for how they want their work to be presented is is kind of upheld which um you know there's 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 such a kind of uh culture of, of mistreatment of work I think uh in the arts and I suppose I mean I was thinking about as well um you you give this account in the roundtable you just discussion you did with on curating about like how how your work was kind of discussed when you were when you were a student and the the ways that you were kind of asked continually to speak to your identity and I suppose that I just wonder how um those kind of experiences have shaped how you kind of talk to artists about their work and and kind of contextualize their work yeah exactly that's kind of what I was thinking about in terms of problematic questions (laughs) (laughs) I think yeah I mean I engage with artists who mostly are not white male heterosexual artists Mm -hmm. so I think there's obviously been a trend, well, I call it a trend, of institutions being interested in in speaking about different positions than the white um, cishet male artist. But I think at the same time, a real unwillingness to actually think about what that means and what it means to acknowledge that the norm is literally just a position, like a position that has been normalised and, and given this pedestal and whose opinions or whatever have become the norm with like the work as a as a buffer in in those institutions and like gives space to like first of all raise these questions of the institution and kind of ask the questions where they where I feel like they need to be asked in mm-hmm. the process and i can do that because i'm not the artist and because 
I want to create that space. Like I, w- I want to be sure that all the, you know, like the cultural value that I bring to an institution is handled with accountability and responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that with being present in the institution, it's not just a one-time event, you know, like that it's, um, that there have been questions raised and those discussions have been had so that when I'm not working there, when someone else is not working there, then they can continue kind of building on those discussions and, and can, can, like, they will remember that they had to have a discussion around, um, I don't know, I brought this this example of um, uh, exhibition texts, for example. So, like, just all these kind of processes that you can you can raise as a curator and then hopefully they will stick to some extent. Mm. Absolutely. And Rabs, how about you? I mean, uh, in in the work that you're doing with Languid Hands at the moment and kind of in, in the statement you, you released at the start of your fellowship at Qubit, you um, drew out that link of curating in, in the Latin curare to, like, to care for. So I'm wondering for you what ways your kind of artistic practice has informed the ways that you, you build that care for artists? Yeah, I mean... Strangely for me, I mean, I didn't go to art school and I was programming before I was making work, I guess, or maybe maybe at a similar time, but programming was kind of at the forefront. And I actually learned the most about how the art world works through my mum, partly, but also through um, working in kind of low level jobs in institutions, working front of house or being admin assistant or, or those kinds of jobs. Um, and those are often the jobs that are most likely to, to to black people. And I spent a lot of time in those jobs, like looking at processes and, and working out how things work so that I could work out what I did and didn't want to recreate and reproduce. Um, and that's been really useful because I know how it works. I know what is and isn't necessary. Um, I know what is and isn't urgent. And that informs the way that that I work with artists in in a huge way. I think also with mentors and and people who've kind of taught me what it like what the issues are um taught me kind of told me about the horrible experiences they've had and why they were horrible and those are the types of things that inform that kind of care and it's an ongoing process because you we can't operate as um as freely as we'd like to because mm. of the structures that that kind of pervade and because of the structures that mean that we can or can't work in certain places or can and can't do certain work. Um, so it's an ongoing process and it's a, a, a process that's about learning and, co- and constantly learning from the artists that we're working with, constantly learning from our own experiences and other people's experiences. And yeah, I think it's building a way of working that is completely different to the the way of working that's been established. And so sometimes you fail and sometimes it's not ideal. And sometimes the institution's, you know, violence is is so overt that you can't protect the artist from it. Mm -hmm. But if your intention is to do that, then, you know, that's what your intention is to do. And, and, And the artists tend to know that, especially if you have, you know, really good working relationships with them. You know, we've done work and, and been working with with white curators who have you know their lack of trust of us has become very apparent mm. um and the artists have picked up on that but the artists have also acknowledged that you know 
that's not because of us. That's because of the system that we're working within. And they can see and they know that we're doing the best we can to protect them from that. Um, and if we could entirely protect them from that and not work with these, these organisations, we would. But, you know, that's just not where we're at at the moment. Um, and then I think also on top of that, um, you know, it's not just white institutions that perpetuate these kinds of things. Um, I've had an experience, and I know Deborah has too, where we, like, we've been working with people who share identities with us, and that's been just as bad, if not worse, than mm. working with these kinds of institutions. And I think those experiences for me have really kind of, uh, they've really solidified my political commitments and my understanding of tokenism, my understanding of the ways in which we are used and then use each other um, within these systems. Um, and, you know, it's not just that I work with black artists because they're black, it's that, you know, I work with black artists because that's my intention and because they're people who whose values and, and, and uh, politics are aligned with mine. Mm. Um, and that doesn't mean that there's no diversity, but it means that, you know, we are united in the fact that we don't want to be exploitative to each other. Mm. Um, and that's something that I've learned recently. Um, and it, it, it feels like a really good place to be in to realise that so that you're not falling into kind of these kind of situations where you you trust institutions or you trust people just because of the face of them or just because of what they proclaim to be. Mm. Um, but you really listen to what people's values are and and what your values are and live by those instead. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose because, I mean, I suppose what I learn from both of you and and from other kind of peers working with similar intentions in this field but not just this field is this idea that you're kind of touching on that it is this kind of continual learning process um and I suppose like I find a lot of affinity with um the ways that you've been in those kind of administrative front of house positions and and learnt those processes and I suppose that that I've had that experience but without such an awareness of it initially like I suppose the ways that you're kind of trained and the ways that you internalise those processes and the ways you internalise the systems that you exist within Deborah as well, you've spoken about it in, in relation to this like unlearning of the worldview that you're you're kind of raised within. Mm -hmm. And I think that that intentionality for me wasn't, um, you know, there were, there were aspects of it that I took for granted as being like, this is the way we do things because this is the way I've been told that we do things. And actually the 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 kind of break in that for me has been my, uh, my health and like I have long-term mental illness that um, has been exacerbated by the kind of working environments that I've been within. And getting to a point where I was like too unwell to work at all and was like completely signed off for like a period of about four months from working made me realise that those kind of structures that we internalise and learn and perpetuate are so harmful to so many people and can't be sustained. But I know that, you know, it's. I guess it's why there's always this return or a kind of uncomfortability I have with 
curating and the term curator and and that being the work that I do because I think I doubt the work that I do all the time and Mm. uh, quite often look back on things and go like okay so like yeah my intention there was to do this but like it absolutely did not it did not align with it and it did not achieve that and actually I would never I would never do that again um you know you constantly actually trying to resist the the norms that are really really pervasive um and that you're told to mold yourself within yeah I think um I mean similarly last year which like appeared to be like one of my most busy and maybe successful years I was pretty much in bed for eight months and um and there's kind of this sense that um that I that you know these systems and, and the ways that institutions work and the ways that curators work are not humane systems they're not systems that um support our our living like and and our our being able to survive um and I think that lesson that I feel like I learned from that like sad dark period um is really important um that's the kind of learning that's not supported in the art world or in in educational institutions but it feels like I learned more then than I did studying for my MA for example or 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 working in certain institutions yeah I think the point that you both raised about um continuous learning is really important and it plays into that idea as you said Jamila about um unlearning the world view or um detaching yourself or try it like continuously detaching yourself doing the work to move differently than how the system set up so that you can create these spaces i mean we're all also operating within those spaces so it's always there's always limits but i guess then the, the important thing is to take those learnings and be open to also acknowledging and accepting when you might have not acted the best and um could have dealt with situations better mm. um so that you can obviously do that in the future yeah and I suppose as well I mean there's this element of of kind of maintaining a transparency around those those processes and when things when situations and environments that you're working with actually are really challenging and are really hostile and really difficult to build a meaningful resistance to and I think you know there's always this bind where you you know this is what you we all do for work and um sometimes you take opportunities um because you need to pay the bills um or because well quite often there's a there's a complete disconnect with how um you know an institutional organization or or individuals present themselves publicly compared with you know how they actually what their their core intention actually is which can be really hard to actually identify and to know until you are in that situation and I think that you know so much of the work I've done I I can't think of work I've done that I'm necessarily really happy with or or that I would repeat the environments that I was in and want to enter into them again and I think like one of the things that I did during that those those kind of experiences was to just be honest with as much as possible with the artists or with the people that I was working with 
um, about what was going on and about the difficulties. And I think that, you know, the first time I was in one of those situations where I was kind of facilitating a programme that was was kind of for um, BIPOC people, um, I there was a there was a moment where I was like, oh, do I hide that this is difficult because I'm going to completely like maybe put them off and this is meant to be like a nurturing environment and it's meant to be really positive. And do I just tell them <laughs> that actually the program that we're running is really undervalued and being really mishandled by the organisation that we're working with? And But actually, I think there is a responsibility. Oh, I don't know if it's a responsibility as such. Maybe that's the wrong way to phrase it. But I think there is a lot of... Um, it's very helpful to build transparency around that, even if it's not in a public setting, just with the people that you're actually kind of collaborating with to ensure that you will have that knowledge and you you kind of aren't in the dark about what's actually going on. Definitely. <laughs> I think, uh, but I think it's also a, it's a, it's a difficult balance because um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I try to be as transparent as possible, but there's been times where I haven't been because of, of difficult situations or because of kind of fear of backlash or something like that. But um, I think it is really important um, because it's also about the people you're working with seeing you as a person too. Mm-hmm. Um, and also demystifying um, these spaces that people are so, and, and, and a lot of black and brown people are so excited to be accepted by um and you know those need to be demystified like we need to stop celebrating working with Tate we need to stop celebrating you know getting certain kinds of of um of support from certain kinds of institutions or certain kinds of people um because the fact that we aren't transparent about about those things are you know that contributes to someone else being exploited by that um and and that's an experience that i've had um and you know i i'm now like trying to resist doing that again um it's really hard to to reckon with but it's also hard in a lot of ways i've spoken to to some artist friends who've been in situations where they're programmed by a curator that they don't necessarily have a relationship with a black curator that they don't necessarily have a, a relationship with who is maybe like too transparent about that in the sense of like like kind of that then becoming a collective problem um and the artist having to deal with that um so I think it's a balance in between it's, it's about being transparent but not uh allowing that those things to be kind of absorbed by the artist and 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 be extra stress on the artist back but being like look this is what I'm dealing with I'm doing my best um is is the best that you can do really um and yeah like I think particularly in the UK you know we have a very very conservative and ridiculous culture around talking about money for example which means that organizations can hire a bunch of people to do the same thing and they're all getting paid a a ridiculous range of different fees um you know it breeds exploitation and and and, you know I think that people don't do that because they want to be celebrated and they want to enjoy you know the kind of accolade that that certain work can bring them but also we have to always be thinking about you know who is who is not in this room or who is not in this space and why and and what can I do to make sure that that the space that I'm taking up can also be for someone else um Mm -hmm. 
and transparency is I think is a really big part of that yeah I think it's also um the work that we do is so outcome driven it's mm-hmm. so focused on like that yeah that outcome and there's always like very stressful periods before and I think it's also about navigating expectations like to yourself to the artist and to the institution and yeah being realistic about things and and setting priorities like is it more important that something turns out exactly how you planned it or envisioned it or is it more important that I don't know you get that one hour more sleep so that you can actually be bearable to the people around you Mm -hmm. not even just for yourself you know like also also for the artists and yeah, I mean, I suppose it it's becomes challenging because there are there are so many structures that we work within which are exploitative, which are incredibly harmful. Um, you know, when we're talking about this work, we're talking about the structures that exist in the arts, but they are part and parcel of wider structures that exist in this country, in this part of the world, even like you know, the way you talk about things like being outcome-driven, Deborah, and and the fact that that is part of, you know, the the kind of capitalist system that we exist within and and the ways that it um, places an emphasis and values mainly productivity and, like, you know, (laughs) our worth to capital. And all of these things come into play when you are are making work, when you were were organising in a kind of art setting. But also the government that we are under in the UK and the fact that a lot of our money comes from them and you know something that that people have been sharing recently was a um a letter that went out to museums and and organizations um from the secretary of culture telling them that they weren't allowed to remove you know complex or or controversial um objects from their museums um if they were under pressure to do so from from activists um or from the public and those are the kind of things that we're working against and it's one thing to be aware of that and it's another thing to actually know how to identify it and know to I- know how to explicitly identify where your money is coming from and work outside of that and i suppose that's that's not something that i have an answer to but i guess that is a bind that you are continually in as a as a curator and an artist yeah i don't know when i'll ever feel entitled to speak on the uk context hmm. just because obviously most of my work has been in switzerland and only started working in the UK in the arts maybe like last year. So my experience around those kind of specific situations is very is very limited. But obviously I'm starting to learn also the differences in the funding funding um system and how like one thing that I find very um alienating is how tied it is to the government in the UK and how, you know, the Arts Council, for example, functions basically as a part of the government and that whoever gets money through them is kind of an asset to them mm. if that if that makes sense like those kind of things that like, I guess are really important to navigate and to um to recognize I don't know if there's a if there's an alternative <laughs> like or yeah I don't know what the alternative is because I guess um there's also this question around like public money or private money uh, brand money and there's just different ways in which the work gets co-opted or compromised yeah i think all of all of like it feels like there's like not really any clean money um 
in in that kind of way, you know, the Arts Council is one avenue and that's linked to the government and like, you know, as as is seen in that letter, you know, they're essentially threatened with being defunded um, as a result of, of this kind of like contested heritages. I think that's how that's how they describe it. But then also private money just tends to be, uh, you know, capitalists trying to clean their money or or, or, or trying to look like they're doing something good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then brand money is like, you're just an advert. Um, so it's, just, it's, you know, I mean, I'm an anti-capitalist, so I don't know if any of those things are are a good alternative. For me, it's like, you know, I, we, we all survive within capitalism because we have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and because this is how we work and this is how we operate and this is how we live. Um, and there's not really an alternative at the moment. Um, so I, I wouldn't separate, you know, the art, the system of the arts with, from the rest of the world and from the rest of politics. And like, it's like, you know, my politics is an anti-capitalist one. That doesn't mean that I don't engage with capitalism because it's impossible to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my alternative is to, you know, create an anti-capitalist system. Like that's a, a bigger question and a bigger um uh a bigger discussion that goes beyond the art world um mm. it got it you know i i never i always try and see the arts as part of the world that we live in it's not separate it's not unique it doesn't have um any kind of exceptionalism it is exactly the same if not sometimes worse because of its uh, assumption of its own greatness um and you know, it's 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 important to kind of look at it in that way. Um, you know, part of uh, the Cubit Fellowship, like one of the things that we're kind of initiating as Languid Hands is um, curatorial tactics, which is a network of black curators. And and when you know this particular uprising happened, you know, we were thinking about that and thinking about what can define that, and thinking about the kinds of actions that we can take as curators that are in defence of black life. And I think, you know, one of those for us as abolitionists is also about trying to trace where the money that comes from the carceral system, the prison industrial complex and the military industrial complex, like trying to trace that and work out how to try and avoid uh, accessing that kind of money, Um, like actively boycotting, uh, you know, institutions that that utilize that kind of money. The difficulty is that 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 the way that capitalism works is that it's so cloaked in mystery. It's so cloaked in like, you know, paperwork and moving from this country to the next and this bank account to the next. It's actually hard to find that information. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, that's an action that we can do is that we can try to seek out those, um, yeah, those nuggets of information, um, and, and try to resist them in, in a, in a similar way. Um, the photographer Nan Golding has done loads of work um, and loads of actions around um, uh, resisting art galleries and institutions that um, use big pharma money, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that and that is an on, on ongoing uh, uh, sort of organisational tool and, and, and action. And that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking about because not only is that about us as artists, but it's also about us as people and us as Black people and the things that are that affect us beyond uh you know our capacity to make work and to be entertaining or to be useful um in that in those kinds of ways 
Absolutely. And I, you know, that is, that is really important just to linger on. I think, you know, exploding that idea that the arts is somehow this, this kind of like safe kind of progressive, uh, like really radical political space, um, that is separate from, from the rest of the UK, from the, the rest of the kind of oppressive structures in the world when in fact, yeah, it, it's very much, it's very much part of it. And I think knowing that and, and having that, that sense really helps to, to dis- demystify your position and, and the ways we are complicit in things and what we are complicit in. And yeah, I suppose actually saying, you know, in, instead of there being that, um, that statement that is made that like all money is dirty and how are we ever going to avoid using money that, that is tainted and, and comes from kind of nefarious means, but actually to say, you know, what is the, what is the roots of the money that we're using and where is where are the organizations and where are the funding streams that do not perpetuate those really violent and hostile um kind of policies that that exist in the UK and kind of across the world um one of the things that i wanted to kind of um to to think about as well was is something that that i've kind of had to come through in my own curatorial practice and I've come through like learnings that that from both of your research and from your practices which is this kind of um this theorizing around an an action and organizing around representation that exists in the arts um and the sense that I suppose it's continually positioned as uh, representation being a signifier of progress and something to aim towards. And, you know, there's there's that, that phrase that is continually used of like having a seat at the table when in actual fact, when you're leveraging people to have a, a quote unquote seat at that table, you are not dismantling the the kind of oppressive structure that exists. You are just placing more people into a system which seeks to to disconnect them from themselves that seeks to harm them and others um and it's something that both of you have kind of talked about in in various ways um you know Deborah in in that round table with on curating one of the things you touched on a lot was was kind of tokenization um and the kind of unlearning of of those kind of white supremacist worldviews and and Rabs, I was watching your um experimenter debate talk from 2018 and, and one of the things you said there was um that representation will not get us free and I'm trying to figure out what will. Um I think like one of the the things that I found that I've I thought summarized this some of this thinking quite well was a quote from Angela Davis, which uh is I have a hard time accepting diversity as a synonym for justice, diversity as a corporate strategy. Diversity without structural transformation simply brings those who were previously excluded into a system as racist, misogynist as it was before. So I wanted to touch on your ideas around the kind of limits of representation. Um, 
and the ways in your own practice you situate a kind of resistance to or dismantling of oppressive structures as opposed to bringing more people into them. And I just want to pretext the second the second part of that question with a notion that I don't think that the responsibility of dismantling these structures should fall on black artists and curators, but I think that it's a question that we we come up against as curators in the sense of working within these systems, how do we actually protect ourselves and the artists that we are working with from harm and build kind of nourishing environments for them and each other? So, I mean, a lot of the work that I do in terms of film programming and and filmmaking is around a, a frustration that I have with, uh, with people's focus on representation. Um, representation is a tool, it's not a goal. Um, it's one of many strategies that we can employ to create change. I don't think that it's, it's, uh, I don't think that it's irrelevant. I don't think it's not important, but I do think that it's overstated um, Mm -hmm. because the idea that we haven't been represented is a myth. Um, The idea that there, you know, that we don't see enough black people here and we don't see enough black people there you know, I, I particularly talk about this in terms of the media and film, like black people have been in films since film, since film has been a thing, black people have been in films. Um, and, you know, that is not going to create justice. That's not going to create equity. That's not going to change people's minds because if, if their minds were like, if people wanted their minds to be changed, they would have been changed by now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, radical to to be as you said like have a seat at the table the table needs to be destroyed like that's the the that's the issue um and so I talk about um in in my film work I talk about trying to go beyond representation and towards liberation and I say towards because it's not something that I fully understand myself it's not something that I know how to do um but it's an intention that I have and I know that representation will not bring us that. Um, and we should all know that because the evidence is clear. I think, you know, there are just, there's so much focus on um, on representation. There's so much focus on we need more black CEOs. We, we need more black artists. We need more black this. And, and, and really what we need is a different world. And, you know, Focusing on representation, it, it breeds tokenism, it breeds exploitation because all you're there for is your face. All you're there for is, is the identity that you bring. And that doesn't do anything to to deconstruct the system. You know, people, people you know, that there's this kind of quote going around that's like, you know, if all of the cops were black, it would still be a racist institution. Mm. It doesn't matter if, you know, we are represented, if the system to its core is racist you know it's systematic it's not about people and individuals it's about the way that something's been constructed and I think you know in in relation to to mine and, and Langwood Hans's work the, the decision that we made to program um you know black artists only for Cubit was not to represent them but was to model a way of working that uh, foregrounds them um, a way of working that acknowledges the breadth and 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 depth of their experience and their 
work um, that allows them to focus on the work, not on being the black person in that space. Um, and, you know, committing to working only with black artists in, in, in this period is, it shouldn't be radical and it shouldn't be unexpected um, because we can have a lifetime of working with only black artists because there's so many and they're so varied and different and they're not there to just be represented, they're there to, to live lives as people, um, to be supported, to be cared for, to be, um, you know, even critiqued, like, like these things are important. Um, and, you know, representation is like a tiny tool in like an arsenal of tools that should be used to dismantle the system. Um, yeah. And I think it, representation is also like the easiest way for a capitalist white supremacist system to include us is mm. the, the, the bare minimum. And, um, you know, that means that we need to problematize it and we need to do something else. Yeah. It's got, it's kind of like the, the quick fix, um, to all problems. Like it's, it's really this thing of like finding ways to avoid addressing the system's problems in just having a quick fix of like, yeah, more representation. And then the assumption that black people can't be harmful to black people, for example, mm. which is obviously bullshit. Um, and yeah, I, I learned recently that there's this quota of like achieving, I think, I can't remember the exact number. I think it was something about around like 20%. Um, for example, if you have like in a, in a white business, you have 20% of black employees. And apparently um, that study says that because there's 20% of black people, the black people who are there feel comfortable enough to speak out about issues. So then that is enough representation, mm. which is uh, obviously works in the same way as like any quota of like, you need to have this amount of like the same amount of women as men. That's the goal at the, like at the minimum, like we only need five women in the room. So we're only going to get five women in the room mm. and not more. Um, and it's always like kept at that minimum where you can still, where the system still continues to work in those ways. I mean, I have strong doubts that those 20% of black people will actually say the things that need to be said. Mm. And also, yeah, not every, it's also like this thing of like assuming that every black person is an anti-racism expert, which a lot of black people are just not interested in as well. So I think, yeah, representation is very dangerous and it doesn't, it doesn't look at the actual structural problems of things. It just puts a plaster on an issue. And I mean, that's the wave that we're kind of seeing now, like with more representation, maybe like now it's been pushed more into senior roles. But then in a couple of years, we'll have the same discussions and the same issues as we have now, because obviously that's not the solution. That's just a way of like delaying the actual fall or like the you know like delaying the conversation to get to the core of it it also becomes like like a performative gesture that like you know that that benefits the system as well um so in the arts for example it's like having like a diverse audience or a diverse staff it benefits the institution because it makes them look good but you know that that then like feeds into the the very like legitimacy of that system to exist um and i think yeah that's that's a real issue and also this idea of diversity like in in the first place 
it it like I, I remember I was I was working at an organization when I was studying for my MA. I was working at part-time and they were talking a lot about diversity and they were hiring for my role and they were like, oh well, you know what we don't have is we don't have a straight man here. So we should probably hire a straight man. You know, it's like that's the level that people are at. <laughs> and and it's like that doesn't like propor- proportional representation like it doesn't mean that it's equitable it doesn't mean like the reason for you know what they would call um affirmative action in the US is to is to try and correct or to try and um uh, address imbalances right a di- like a diverse staff doesn't address address an imbalance um you know and and Overrepresentation would would address an imbalance, but that's not what people are striving for, and I think that that's that's really key to understand. Um, and also, like it also assumes that we want to be in space with white people, or we want to be in mm-hmm. space with different kinds of people. Like maybe we don't, and and that also has to kind of be okay, because you know it's it's draining to be in those spaces anyway, and you know. I I don't really want to live in a rainbow world where like, you know, everyone is different and the same. That's not interesting to me. And I don't think it's interesting to most people, but that's the, the idea and that's the ideal. And and that's a real problem because it's, it's an erasure basically. Oh, so just like digesting everything you both said. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the ways that the arts operates in terms of its diversity policies and I mean this is something that has been really widely critiqued um the sense that that it does place people as as checkboxes and um doesn't look into things like staff retention um you know how long somebody has actually stayed in that role um it just will put them as a number and and be on its way and that then the ways that we kind of define progress uh in terms of like diversity it's quite often grouped into really really uh wide ranging um groups or like uh, i don't know different access needs or whatever it is under one umbrella of diversity but having those numbers higher than the year before or five years before or whatever is so reductive and really completely um discounts lived experience of those people but also um even like the roles that they're in uh you know I, one of the places I worked where this was a continual buzzword for them and they set up like a diversity board that they asked us all to be on which was like a really horrible process all the time we had to have these like I think they were like bi-weekly or or monthly meetings about how to make things more diverse where the kind of strategies we were offered were things like quotas it's like these morsels they offer you to to enact change which really are not are not um you know helpful at all um and for that for that um organization you know like their whole finance team was black and so they get to state that on all of their all of their kind of reporting Mm -hmm. but of course the finance team don't have any kind of of um, decision making power over anything to do with how that organization is run Mm -hmm. um other than the finances if even that you know they're still answering to a ceo they're still answering to a board so you know i think 
it's it's the sense of actually and it's something that both of you have talked about as well and is the sense of actually asking for more that we are continually told that we can only ask for so much and then told that we should be grateful for it and not be disappointed with that when actually the thing we're being given is quite often incredibly harmful Mm -hmm. I was just gonna um add I guess like it's it's exactly that with um representation and in terms of being invited you know as um see we want to make it better and like you should be grateful Mm -hmm. um you should be like how dare you turn down like this opportunity if you turn it down then that means you're part of the people keeping black people out of these roles kind of thing Mm -hmm. speaking about like diversity boards and stuff like this I mean the last few months have been intense in that respect for everyone yeah and like one I mean one situation that kind of jumps out that I guess illustrates quite well what we're speaking about now um is that I reached out to an institution that had a horrible 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 title of an of an exhibition um that was just completely insensitive to everything and um yeah and and the way they reacted was not in reacting about that complaint, but inviting me into the institution to join the diversity board. Mm. Mm. Um, And obviously that fixes problems for them because then they have the diversity board, they have someone on there who's black and who speaks about these things. But like there's there's no logic in that either. Like I'm mind boggled at um, how you make that step from being addressed about a problem and then wanting that person to be part of your institution to talk about exactly these problems, but yet you refuse to talk about the problem. That, mm. like, I mean, that, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, and I guess that's exactly what I feel is the issue with representation, that it's inviting people in to solve something um, or to distract from, from like what is actually being spoken about. Like, what would I do on the, on a diversity board of an institution that, as a first working relationship, has refused to hear my complaint? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I feel like there's an aspect of, like, really what it's about is, like, fungibility. It's about the the fact that, that we're still, as Black people, seen to be uh, fungible. So, and that is to mean, like, we can be replaced by another person. Um, mm. we can be replaced by another person who does a sa- the same job um, and that you know that leads back to slavery it's like oh if one of you dies whatever we've got another one um, you know and and that is 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 oppressive um, it's an it's an oppressive thing to consider and that that links to representation it links to these diversity boards it links to like the ways that you know you fill out the form and you tick the boxes and 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 you know and they ask you specifically as the black person who's in the audience to do that. Um, you know, those, those methods, it's like, they just see us as, as interchangeable. And um, actually like Imani and I often talk about like these, these moments that happen when uh, you're at like some kind of art event and there's a photographer there. And then like f- five or six months later, you see yourself in their like, you know, their newsletter or whatever. Um, and, you know, that's happened to, that happened to us recently. Like we were, we were like a picture of us on the ICA's newsletter to advertise something that was like completely irrelevant to the thing that we were at. Um, and I saw it happen also um, to Zoe Whitley, who was like on the front of the Glasgow International um, like booklet thing. 
you know, not quoted as like, you know, these people who are doing this work, but just random black person that you can take a photo of and show as, you know, you know, that those kinds of things. And, and that, so that experience for us, we like decided that we were going to, when we're working with institutions, we're going to add something in the contract that's like, you cannot use images unless they're related directly to this, you know, mm. because there's this, it's, it's it, like, and I'll use this word again, it's like a parasitic experience um, with institutions where it's like, they just want to sap everything they can out of you and then like leave you to just fend for yourself. Um, I think that's important to to note. Absolutely. I could just keep talking forever, but I think we're kind of coming to the end of our time now. <laughs> so yeah, Deborah and Rabs, I just wanted to to thank you both so much for joining me as ever. Um, I just, I mean, continue to learn so much from you both and, and kind of understand so much about, I don't know, myself and the world through, through your work and through speaking with you. So um Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me and, and for, for sharing so much over, over this conversation. Thank you. Thank you as well. This is the final episode of Collective Imaginings. Thank you for joining me over the last three conversations. And thank you to Lucy, Rachel, Gemma, Deborah and Rabs for sharing their thoughts and imaginings with us. You can listen back to the series on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you will continue moving through and discovering collective imaginings of your own. Thank you for listening. If we are to leverage real, meaningful change within the cultural sector, we need to begin from a place of collectivising in order to dismantle and oppose the hostile and often inhospitable institutional landscape which has long been the norm. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people to find us. You can find out more on Lighthouse's website, lighthouse.org.uk. Thanks to Platform B and our producers, Elijah Peart, Nat Sparda and Ed Appervore. Special thanks to David Richards and Womb for providing the music. The music featured is I Built You Live by Womb and Redcliffe by Brunstein. And thank you to Andrea Ruiz-Bob for designing the series identity. This Light Plus podcast series is supported through Lighthouse's Reimagine Europe programme funded by Creative Europe.